So, we're going to learn, it's from volume 19 of his talks. Every one of his talks were edited. One week I'm going to show you some pages of how he edited things and the stuff that the Chassidim wrote up. And this theme is on an interesting theme. The Parsha says, Re'ei, Anoichi, Noisein Hashem Lifneichem. You shall see, you will see, or I will show you the blessings, that what I'm going to give you. So it says like this, Re'ei, Anoichi, Noisein Lifneichem Hayoim. You're gonna, I'm going to show you today what I'm going to give you in front of you. I'm going to give to you today blessings, bracha, uklala. Now, loosely translated, then we're going to have to understand how to really translate something. But let's say loosely translated, the way people always look at it to understand the words. Bracha means blessings. Uklala means a curse. So Hashem gives us usually both. He gives you a blessing. And He also tells you, hey, hey, if you don't do what I tell you to do, it could be klala coming. But that's, so that's, the, that's the regular way of understanding it. Now, we all know that if you ever open up a chumash, and you open up, in, if you open up, you have one at home, you open up in shul, every house needs to have a chumash, actually. It's one of the blessings to have a chumash, a tehillim, and a tanya, and a tzedakah box. Every Jewish home needs to have that. Of course, a Jewish calendar. Um, so those are the important things. So a every chumash has, on the side of the chumash, there's always Aramaic words. If you look, let's say, in this chumash, you see here, this is the big Hebrew, the actual text, and on the side there's an Aramaic. Why do they publish in every chumash also the Aramaic? Because there's a custom that it's brought down in the Code of Jewish Law, that every Friday before Shabbos, a Jew is supposed to read every single verse of the entire Parsha, and once, twice, sorry, twice every verse, and once the translation of Unkelos, it's called. Unkelos is the famous convert who translated the Torah. He's actually one of the most earliest translators of the Torah. Well, if you're not ready to read every verse twice at Unkelos once, at least you should know about the concept. That's already one step. So in the, in the uh, Unkelos, first let me give you the background of Unkelos, and then, at least briefly, and then I will we'll go into how he interprets this verse of the words blessing and curse. And there's another translation also in Aramaic, by the called the Targum Yonason, Yonatan Ben Uziel. Very famous uh, Tana, and he translated the Torah too. Now, first about Unkelos. Unkelos was a well-known non-Jew. He was the nephew, as we learned the story, all of us on Tishavah, we learned the story in, uh, from the Gitin in the section about the destruction of the temple. His uncle was Titus, you know, the Arch of Titus, Titus, who was the main person who led the Roman army to destroy the second temple. So his nephew was Unculus, and Unculus decided that he wanted to learn more about Judaism. And eventually he converted to become a Jew. And after he became a Jew, he started to study the Torah more in depth. And he started to appreciate more and more and more the Torah. Now, in those days, we're talking 2,000 years ago, how do you know how to translate every word? His days, we were probably, if, if we're now 
3,333 years after the giving of the Torah. So there, they were around, let's say, 1,300 years or something after the giving of the Torah. So how do you translate every word 1,300 years later after Moses brought it down on Sinai? There could be debates in how to translate things. Those days, things were mostly conducted studying through oral Torah, but he wrote down a translation of the Torah. His translation is considered to be one of the most accurate translations of the Torah, of course, in Aramaic. But if you want to really understand what's a Hebrew word, you look a lot of times into the way he translated it. Rashi, in his commentary, many times says, and Unkelus translates this word to mean so-and-so. So Unkelus is one of our most authoritative, oldest translations of the Torah. And because it's so accurate, his translation, the sages kind of gave it its, its stamp of approval that he really, really knew his stuff. And he didn't just make up any translation out of context. By the way, sometimes to know the translation of a word, you have to look in many different sources all through the Tanakh to really be able to translate a word properly, to know the theme and you know how a word could be used. Sometimes Hebrew words could be used in a few different ways. So he is one of the greatest. Because he's such an um, authentic translation, it's brought down that every Arab Shabbos, you should read the whole Parsha twice and his translation. Even if you don't understand it, it has like a spiritual significance to it. Okay, so that's Unklos. Yonas and Benaziel lived in a later period of time, and he lived in Israel, not where Unculus lived in Babylonia or outside of Israel, and we're soon going to learn the difference of their approaches in the way they translated things. Today, a lot of people go to the burial place of Yonat and Benaziel, especially people that are single, that need a blessing for a shidduch. It's famous that people go there. Anyway, whatever. So the point is that there's another translation in Aramaic, and we're soon going to learn the difference of them. But first, let's learn how they both translate those two words, bracha and klala. The verse, the Torah says bracha uklala. So the Unculus translation in translates bracha uklala. He says bracha vilotin. Lotin in Aramaic means curse. So God gave us the blessings and the curses. You follow the instructions, blessing falls on your head. You don't follow the instructions, curse may be to such a person. So that's the way Hashem motivated us by telling us and how the system works. Now, in several verses later in our same Parsha, it says there that that when the Jews we're going to go over into the land of Israel. You're going to come to the Mount Aval, Mount Grizim and Mount Aval. So when you're going to come, the, 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 the certain people, the tribes, the Kohenim, they're going to stand on Mount Grizim and they're going to announce all the blessings and everybody that's in the middle between the two mountains are going to scream out, Amen! Like, yes, we're in it, we got it. And all the people standing on the Mount Aval, they're going to announce all the curses that God's, you know, it has in store if he needs to bring on, bring them. And everybody's going to say also, Amen, that we accept that too. So even later, when it mentions the curses will be said for Mount Aval, over there, Unculus also translates the words Klala in Aramaic as Leitin, which means curse. Now, however, 
if you look in the translation, in the interpretation, or tar, the Targum, the, the translation of Yonatan, Yonatan Benaziel, or in short, known as the Targum, Yonasan. Over there, however, he translates Bracha Uklala, he says, Bracha and its exchange, meaning like and its opposite. Vichilufa. He doesn't say bracha and klala means blessing and curse. The Targum Yonason says it means blessing and its opposite. So you look even, there's another Targum, another translation called the Targum Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem tar- Targum. And over there it also says blessing and and it's exchanged, just like the Targum Yonason. So we have to understand what is the difference between these two Targumim, and these two ways of translating. Why? And what is the difference that the Unkula says it means blessings and curses, and the other Targum Yonason and the Jerusalem, they write it as blessings and its opposite, or and its exchange. What's the difference? If you say blessing and exchange, does that not, doesn't that mean blessing and a curse? What is the, why do they say a different word? They say a blessing and, a, and, and an exchange. Why don't they also say blessing and a curse? And in addition to that, further on in the same parsha as I just mentioned, by the curses that are going to be said on Mount Abel over there also. It says the word klala, but over there, the Targum Yonason says, by klala, he translates it as curse. So only when you say blessing and curse together, he translates it blessing and its exchange. But when klala is mentioned on its own, he's actually translates it like the onkelos, that it means curse. So we have to understand the differences of this. Now, Many of us could ask, what's the difference? Who cares how he translates it? He says blessing and curse. He said the other guy says blessing and its exchange. Why do we have to get so detailed? Or as some people say, why do we have to fight about everything? Right? So what what, what Elamai, we have to say that there's obviously a reason for that. It's obvious, obvious that there's a reason if they're arguing about something. The sages didn't just argue because they were bored. They argued because there was a fundamental difference of understanding something, which makes a fundamental difference in how we approach things and how we think and so on and so forth. So we have to understand that in this case. Why he says blessing and curse is the translation, and he says blessing and its exchange. What's the difference in how you phrase that. By the way, nowadays is the best example, our generation, all of us, we could all understand the importance of the nuance in a word, especially even in a letter and even in a comma. You all know that if you want to send an email to somebody today, if you have one letter wrong or missing, the email won't get to its destination. So there's no generation better than our generation that could really understand the value of one letter or one period in a, in, in a line. So for the sages that use different words, clearly there had to be something to it. Number two, we also have to understand that the word klala, which means a curse, is an idea on its own, a curse. It, a curse is a concept on its own. When you say exchange, if you say a curse, 
is, and then you say is one thing. If I say blessing and a curse, I have two different entities. But if I say a blessing and it's exchange, one second, exchange means it's connected to the first thing. Because I'm saying it's this and something opposite of this. That means it's connected to this. So if, what's going on? When you say blessing and curse, it's two separate things. This is a blessing curse. We have a clear two entity ideas. But when you say blessing and it's exchange, exchange means exchange of this. That means it's, it's together with blessing somehow. So we have to understand the differentiations here. Number two, when could you use the word exchange? Let's say anybody here, you have a name, let's say your name is Yaakov, and the exchange for Yaakov could be Jacob, let's say, right? Or the exchange for Yaakov could be Yisrael, because that was the first Jacob, got a new name, Yisrael, right? So you have a name and you have an exchange or something that in theme is connected to the first thing. That means that whenever you say the idea something and Let's exchange that something. You have, to ex- you have to exchange it in a similar idea. Otherwise, it's not the exchange of that. It's a different thing. So what is the connection between blessing and the exchange thing? What is this exchange thing? Is it not a curse? What is it? Now, here, the Rebbe throws in an idea that if you want to get technical... There's a beautiful technical thing. It's not brought up in so many places in Hasidus, but it's brought up in a number of places. And for this, I'm going to do a whiteboard so you can appreciate this. And that is that there are certain Hebrew letters that have exchangeable opportunities. What do I mean? For example, it's brought down in Hasidus that in Hasidic literature, it's brought down that when you say every day the Shema prayer, right? When you say the Shema, just plug this in, sorry. So when you say the Shema prayer, so you say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, right? Which means that God is one. Now, it's brought down in the Zohar that when it says that Hashem is one, it's talking about a very high level of unity of God. In the second line, when you say, you know, the one you whisper, you say a lower, the second line, because you don't want the angels to hear it. Moses took the prayer from them and he shared it with us. So, you know, we don't want to make them all crazy that we stole their prayer, so we say it on an undertone. On Yom Kippur, you're like an angel, you say it loud. So it says in the Zohar that the second line, when you say, blessed is his name, his kingdom forever and ever, that line refers to a lower level of unity of God. And it's a, it's a conversation, a class for another time, the difference of a higher level of unity versus a lower level of unity. But the Alter Rebbe in, his, in the Tanya, in the section that we haven't learned yet, Shari Yichud over there, where he speaks about the gateway of unity and faith, over there he says that the reason why the second line also refers to a unity level of God, even though you don't have the word oneness at all in the second line, it just says, blessed be your name, your kingdom forever and ever. Where do you see a concept of a oneness of God? So the Rebbe explains that the word for one, how do you spell one? So you spell it echad. That's how you spell, that's how you spell it. How do you spell echad? Aleph, ches, dalet. Now, the last word of the second line 
forever and ever. Your kingdom shall be forever and ever. The last word for for forever and ever is va'ed. Vav, ayin, dalid. The ayin, dalid. No. Here. Now, South Rebbe says, if you pay attention to these letters, you could see that each one of the three letters on the first line for Echad, one, each one of the three letters for Vod, which means really forever. But he says, really, in the word Vod, also you have the letters of Echad. Man, that could be quite deep. How do you find that? How do you see in the word Vod also the letters of Echad? So he explains us like this, a fascinating idea. The first letter of Echad is Aleph. The first letter of Vod is a Vav. Now, these two letters, Aleph and Vav, are, are exchangeable in a certain group. Aleph, Vav, and Hey and Yud, these four letters in the Hebrew alphabet are, are called, they're a group of letters. The name of the group is either called Avahi or you could say Alavav Heyud. What meaning what? These four letters have a very close similarity. In other words, they come from like the same family of letters. What's the family of letters? So he says there are three similarities in all these four, these four letters. They are all letters. They all have within it an idea of letters of continuation. For example, let's say in the Torah, what's the first words of the Torah? Bereshit bara. Now, how do you spell bara? Bez, resh, aleph. Now, technically, you don't need an aleph to say bara. You could write it like this, bara. The aleph is a silent letter. But the aleph also is a letter that it's called a letter of dragging or a letter of continuation, bringing the bays and the resh forward to make it stronger that this word means bara means creation but so you put an aleph at the end even though technically you could read bara without an aleph the aleph is totally a silent letter now obviously on the first line you echad also has an aleph so since the aleph and the vav are both in the same grouping therefore aleph and a vav are connected it's like the same letter in some in some aspects. You also have the similarity of the Aleph and the Vav. They are both letters of Noyach, which means they are both letters that are used as a silent letter. For example, in the word Bereshit, Bereshit is, you add the Shin Yud Saf. What's the word? Bereshit. Bereshit, again, I'm putting an Aleph in there. Do I need the Aleph in there? The Aleph is a silent letter. And the letter Vav is also used many times as a silent letter. You have the word Koil, let's say. That word. There's a Vav in the middle, but you could also spell it without the Vav. Like this, Koil. So the Vav in the middle is a silent letter. So again, the Vav and the Aleph are both could be used as a silent letter. And same too with He and the Yud. So that's, again, these four letters are from a group that could also be used as a silent letter. And then there's a third category called letters of Nishima. Nishima means like a breath in it. 
So you could say Bereishis, but you don't say Bereishis. You don't pronounce the Aleph. So it helped you hear it in the air, the silent letter. It's in the breath, it's in the ear, but you don't pronounce the letter. So again, Aleph, Vav, Hey, Yud are from the same group, hence the letters. Let's go back now without us confusing ourselves. The Echad and Vav, Aleph and Vav, Aleph on the top line, the Vav right under it, are both in the same group, therefore they are called exchangeable letters. Then you have the second letter, Ches. Ches and an Ayin are also in another group called the same group. This is called the group of letters called Aleph, Ches, Hey, Ayin. We call that Ache. There's a, a group of letters called Ache. Ache comes from the groin. What's the groin? The groin means your throat. These are letters that you used the throat part of your, I guess, of your speech way. So you say Aleph, it brings up from the throat. Ches, of course. Hey, Ayin. Again, ayin, you're using your throat. When you have a beard covering your neck, you can't really see it. But if you try it, you'll feel your neck moving when you say aleph, ches, hey, ayin. Your jaw will move with the letter, kind of. Aleph, ches. So your throat is there. So those are letters. There's other letters that are different parts. For example, there's the letters from the group called bumph. Bumph is bays, vav, mem, fe. Those come more from the lip. Bays, vav, right? Um, nun, fe. You're using your lip to get those letters out. So that's another group. But the point here in our subject, Ches and Ayin, the Ches from Echo, the Ayin of Ud, those two letters are also exchangeable because they belong to the same group of letters called Ache. And then the last letter is obviously and simple, Dalit and a Dalit. So Echo and Vod both have a Dalit. But what do we see from all of this? What do we see from all of this learned scholars, all of us together, know now that what do you see from all of this is that letters are exchangeable when it's in the right groups. So now in our context, when you say a curse, and instead of saying the word curse, you say exchangeable, it's got to have a connection. So what's the connection between whether you say curse means a curse, or even if you say it means exchangeable to the word blessing. Blessing and a curse are two different worlds. Right? When you give somebody a kiss or you give somebody a bite, you know, that's two different, two different ways of expressing yourself. So, blessing and a curse is two different. So what's the connection to the two? They seemingly, there's supposed to be a connection between blessing and curse. So how do you explain this? He says the following. The difference between... You have to... He says, let's go back to the beginning to understand what is really the difference between Targum Onkelos and Targum Jonathan or Jonathan. What's really the difference between these two? So before we spoke a little bit of their characters, but besides just their character, there's more fundamental depth that separates the two in huge ways. As a matter of fact, most people, even in yeshiva world or anywhere, don't even know, never even heard of the other Targums. It's like deep scholars go to there. But on the, on the surface, Unkelos is the one that everybody studies. Like I said, that's the one you would read on a Friday. So 
And, and look, it's printed in every Chumash today. Every Chumash, the Chumash with English translations, they stick in that Targum Unculus there. It's a funny concept, you know? So to understand the difference between these two Targumim translators, he says, let's understand like this. Targum Unculus is always a literal translator. He takes words and he translates it literally. He does not go away from the simple meaning of a word. Except for very, very few places, and the Rebbe, you know, brings them down in his footnotes here, but 99.99% is always, that's his method of translating. Exact. However, the Targum of Yonason and the Targum of Yerushalmi, that's what it's called, the Jerusalem Targum. And in many places we find that they translate not just the exact translation, Hebrew to Aramaic, but they also include in their translation explanation. In other words, they will take an account what the sages, the medrash, the homiletical insights, the Talmud, many other insights, they will take that into account when they write a translation of a word. So that's why sometimes their translations are not an exact translation in word translation. Sometimes it's translation in theme more than translation of word. Therefore, in our context here, we have the Hebrew words are bracha and klala, blessing and curse. By the way, in three weeks from now, in Shul, we're going to read in Parsha Kitavo the actual list of all the blessings and the curses. 98 curses. A long list of curses. Right? This is the famous story about the Rebbe's son. He was in Shul listening to the reader read the curses and he fainted. <laughs> he took He took it. Literally, you know? So sometimes you gotta, you know, that's the words. So over here, he says that Unklos, again, Unklos's style of translation is exact word for word translation. Therefore, he says, Bracha and Klala means Bracha and curse. However, the sages said, hold on a second. Let's Think for a second, what does it mean that you're translating that literally that God is giving curses? They say, one second, what are you, how could it be? How could it be that God's giving curses? What was the, ver- the words in the same verse right before we said those words, blessing and curse? How did the Parsha begin? It used the words, re'eh. Look, Anaychi I Naysein Lifnechem will place in front of you today blessings and curses. Who's the I? God. God is saying, I will place in front of you blessings and curses. But the sages say, take a deep breath here. Hold on a second. How is it possible to translate that God, who's the giver, it said here, no saint. There's a rule of thumb. That the sages taught us that whenever you give something, you give it with a good eye. You don't give somebody something with a bad intention. If you're a giver, you give it with a good intention, with a good eye. Well, one second. If God's giving us, how could it be he's giving us something that's the opposite of good? 
as the uncle is translated, blessing and curse. How could it be that something bad should come from God? We also have another rule brought down in many places that ain't ra yored milmailo. No bad ever comes down from above. One second. You just said, the verse just said, in today's parsha, the first verse it said, look, I will give you blessings and curses. What? How could it be Hashem is giving a curse? Well, there's a th- rule of thumb that no negativity comes from above. And then there's a third source, actually a biblical verse in the book of Eich of Lamentations. In chapter 3 there it says, from above, no bad comes out from above. Well, based on these sources, the sages ask a simple question. What does it mean that God is giving you today blessings and curses? We just said no such a thing of bad coming from above. So what does it mean? A curse. So in other words, they're saying, how could we translate it? Like, Unculus, who translated it literally as the word is. We're not blaming him, but we got to understand the depth of this. What does it mean, blessing and curse, if there's no such a thing of bad that comes from above? And therefore, based on this strong triple question, the Yonatan Targum explains that a klala means an exchange. In other words, it's an exchange for blessing. What you consider to be a curse is not because God gave it. It's because of you. You, the human being, um, what's the right English word? The human being um, uh, 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 perceives it, um, sees it. The human being sees it. It's your view that this is called a curse. So the Targum Yonason says, no, 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 no. There's a blessing and there's an exchange in the way you see it. Not because it's really a curse. You're seeing this as some kind of exchange of blessing. Meaning, since a person may have done bad and done sin, didn't behave correctly, so the blessing was exchanged through something that you did that now I don't see it as a blessing anymore. It doesn't mean it's not a blessing. What it means when it says the word curse, it doesn't mean curse because no bad can come from above. So what does it mean? It means that you don't perceive it and can't perceive it anymore as a blessing. Therefore, he says it means blessing and in exchange. It's a, either you're going to see it as blessing or you're going to see it exchanged for something else. That's why they don't want to use the word literally because it can't be literally according to the, if you think it through. It can't mean curse because no bad comes from above. When a little further in the Parsha it says that on Mount Aval, you're going to hear the lists of curses. There he says you could say the word curse because there doesn't say I will give you the curse. It just lists out what's going to happen on that mountain. But once you say the words from the, in God's words, I am going to give it to you. Hashem can't give any bad. He doesn't give bad. God is the epitome of good and kindness. No bad truly comes from God. It's just that we perceive it of God because we are not a vessel anymore. If we did the wrong things, we can't see this as good. And we're going to explain this a little bit better and more more depth. 
He says, first, it's not so fully understood. How could you say that an exchange of a curse doesn't come from God? Are you saying that, that that is only, it comes because of the receiver? You, but it comes from the continuation of the words, I will give you today a blessing and a curse. So it's still understood that it's coming from God, even though later. And over here in the same verse, it says, blessing uklala, above in Hebrew means and. It says blessing and curse will come from God. I will give you blessing and, uses the word and, the letter and. Ah, blessing and curse. So what does it mean? You're saying now that it means that the receiver will perceive it as some kind of exchange. What do you mean you're going to, the receiver? It says God's going to give you both blessing and this exchange. Not that you're going to see it some way. So is the exchange coming from God or not? It says in the verse, I will give you both. So to explain this, he says, we have to now understand a little deeper, where did these people come from? See, when you understand where somebody, where somebody comes from, it's a whole different picture. You know, somebody called me up the other day and he was complaining that somebody told him this and this. I said, understand where the person's coming from. That person that told you such and such, look where he's coming from. His, his troubles in his life, which the person knew. So there's many things that you have to take into account. Same two over here. Even though it's right, as we said before, Unculus translates literally, Yonatsen tar- Targum translates with all the deep thoughts behind it. But what happened? Why is it like this? That Unculus translates so literal and this guy translates it with a whole different depth of way of translating. So he says, you have to understand. Why in general do we need translation at all? Why couldn't it always just been in Hebrew? Why do we need a Chumash today with English translation, Yiddish translation, in every possible language, right? What's the best selling book in the world? The Bible. Everybody knows. But it's translated in every single language. Why do you need the Torah to be translated from the holy tongue? It's called Lush and Kodesh. It's the only language that's called the holy language, the holy tongue. Why do you have to translate into any any language? For example, Aramaic in this context. The reason is because the Jews had been exiled from Israel. Where did we move to? We moved to countries of Babylonia, the present-day Iraq. We moved to places where that became the common language. That was the English of that time. So since it was the exile that brought us to a stage that we didn't really understand anymore proper, the Lushan Kodesh. We couldn't learn properly anymore. Today, you ask somebody to open up the Talmud without the translation of English Talmud, Talmuds, it's very difficult to learn. Even Chumash. Most people need a Chayenu. Not everybody can learn it straight from the Chumash. You need translation. You need good translations. Today, we don't even have the time always to focus on the translation and go to the Rashi, so they blend the Rashi into it. Right? The exile continues. We need to find ways how to still learn. So in other words, it was the the setting of the time of the exile that made it necessary to have a translation of the Torah into many different languages. Actually, there's 70 languages that it was interpreted to. So now, this alone, that the exile and the sufferings of exile, the turbulation that Jews suffered through going through exiles when we don't live in our own homeland and we don't live in a surrounding where everybody's learning Torah day and night. 
and we have so much to worry about. Livelihood, what are we going to eat today? What are we going to eat tomorrow? How am I going to pay my bills? There's so much that occupies our minds. So the exile, it has a suffering component to it. So now I need to have translation. So the Targum Unculus, where did Unculus live? He lived in Babel. He lived in Babylonia, as brings down in many different sources. Meaning, he lived in the place of the exile, where the exile was felt to the highest degree. The concealment on true holiness and Yiddishkeit was concealed. He lived amongst the nations. That means that the sufferings of the exile was seen in a very basic level. You were able to see it in front of your face. So therefore, what did you see? If you didn't see blessing, says the Unculus, the opposite is curse. Because where was Unculus? Unculus is coming from the place where godliness was concealed the most outside of Israel. However, the Targum Yonatan, where did Yonason live? And of course, the Targum, the Jerusalem Talmud, they lived in Israel. That means... Even though in Israel, when we didn't have the temple and Jerusalem was destroyed and so on, it was, of course, still an exile. But it wasn't as much as an exile like living outside of Israel. Like you could say today, wow, Israel is amazing. It is amazing. It's a very holy place. But are you going to say every place that you walk in Israel, you see godliness right away? You got to look for it. Yes, in comparison to, to, to Toronto or any other place in Israel, it's like the holy, it's the holy land. It's much greater. But you still can't say that you, you don't feel the exile. Right? Like a Jew, a friend of mine, he came back from Israel a few weeks ago. He said to me, wow, he said, you won't believe it. I, li- I was there for three weeks, I think. He said he was there for three weeks. He said the feeling wherever you go, he said that nothing to a lot of people weren't observant Jews. But he says you just you feel so Jewish. You, the, the, the relaxed feeling of that. It just felt so special. You get to feel that in Israel. But of course you still feel in exile. So when it came time to, for the sages in Israel, Targum Yonison or the Jerusalem one, when they translated things, they at least were able to see things a little bit better than we were able to see things in the diaspora. And therefore... The sufferings of the exile brought them to say, exchange. They got to see deeper into the word curse. Like we said before, when you exchange things, you could see things deeper when things exchange, letters exchange. Because they got to see that the true intention of the curse is the blessing. And that's really a key point here. When you live in exile and you see something bad, all you see is the bad, bad, bad. That's it. When you live in a place or when you're absorbed in a place of holiness, even when you get a slap, you don't see the, feel the slap. You feel the outcome of the slap, which is the lesson to be learned. I brought up many times the famous... Analogy from the Magid of Mizrich, brought down in one of the Rebbe's Mimers of Yitzvat, Basilikani, over there he brings down the analogy that a child who gets a splinter in his foot, 
and the father takes the kid and lies him down and takes, the mother takes a needle, puts it in the fire, you know, and they lay down the kid and they have to tie him down and strap him down. And the kid is screaming, you're killing me, you're murderers, all these things come out of the kid's mouth. Stop, stop, stop. But the father knows best that what's good to poke the kid and get that splinter out. I, why are you doing that? The kid is screaming, don't do it. Because the parents who love the kid so much know that if I do this, I will prevent in who knows what kind of future infections to come out of that. So it's the love that's there. The kid can't see it. So the exile moments of Babylonia or anywhere in the diaspora, you can't see it so good. But those that lived closer to the source in the Holy Land, they were able to see that when it says, they didn't see curse as a whip for no reason. They saw the whip to put us into shape. There was an outcome of it that was the positive love that was in there. So in other words, it would the point of Hashem punishing somebody or cleansing somebody, as we say in Hasidus. It's a cleansing. It's not a punishment. It's a cleansing process in order to get to a higher level. So now when the Targum translates it, Again, it's a translation. Translation means it's a major step down from the Hebrew language. That's why we need to translation, but it's not the Hebrew. Over there, in simple, it's simply understood that what's the goal of the Targum is to understand something that you can't understand from the Hebrew itself. You have to understand ideas of Torah. So what's the deeper meaning of the word curse or exile? We don't say that meaning those words only to the, to the Torah scholars that study Torah all day that know the Hebrew. This is said for everybody that's in exile. People that didn't have an opportunity to learn Hebrew and learn the Torah at many opportunities in their life. Meaning that the exile has affected so much that we have a lot to catch up on. So we have to understand what's the meaning in the word Targum, not just the translation, but the translation has to help us with knowing the meaning to this. And that's why in the beginning of the Parsha, in very short, we just say the general idea, I am going to bring you bracha and klala. What's the goal of the klala? Ah, when I bring you into the land, the holy land, and where you're going to go in there, and you're going to inherit it, this land... What's the point of it? It's in order to affect us that through our animal soul and our evil inclination, we need to translate it sometimes black and white, that it's a curse. Because that may be the only way that you could talk to yourself. How do you motivate yourself? You can't just talk about the outcome of it. Sometimes in the exile, sometimes you have to say, blessing or curse. You're going to get this and this is going to happen to you. But when you talk about the depth of the Torah, like they see it in Israel, there they speak about not just what you have to tell somebody, blessing or curse. We see it with the goal that's in it. The goal is not the curse. The goal is the outcome to become more refined and better and holier. Now, this is the reason why in our partial, when it says, I will give it to you, we say exchange in order to lighten the weight of us Jews in the diaspora. Meaning, the, the, the deeper meaning of everything is, you could ask a question, since it's Hashem who's giving it to you, 
Hashem is so holy, so omniputin, he's, he's, he's above us all. How could you say that he's going to give you something something exchange? So he says that this is what it means, that the real idea is to unite together the levels of God and the levels of our devotion to Hashem, that all things that get in our way that seem like they are an obstacle of us serving Hashem, we use out the obstacles to help us to serve Hashem. That's why it uses the word anochi. You know that there's a, in Tanya, when we learned the Tanya chapters 26 and onwards there, we spoke about the, the chapters of depression, right? Do you remember those chapters about depression? So the Rebbe said, how is a person supposed to think about their life when they have troubles in life, whether it's family issues, whether it's health issues, or whether it's financial issues. So the Rebbe gave us to understand that everything that comes from Hashem, it comes from very, very high places of God. As you know, in the names of God, right? You have the name Adnai, you have the name Yud Kevavke, then you have levels of God that are even higher than using of a na- use of a name, right? Why do we use names? Names you use when there's me and you in the room. We need to have a name. But if I'm myself in a room or you're yourself in a room, you don't need to have a name. A name is only for somebody else to call you. So when you use a name about God, it's talking about a level of God that it's, you, you and God in a level of comparison. But ultimately, there's levels of God that are not, don't even need a name. It's higher than having a connection to us. So Alter Rebbe said, everything comes ultimately only from God. Nothing happens in this world if it's not from God. Ah, how come you see sometimes suffering? <laughs> you know why? Because it's coming from such a high place that it can't come down into this low world in a way where you could see it as good. But the truth is, it's coming from a call, it's called the world of concealment. It's coming from such a high place that you can't even, you can't, you can't connect to it. So you, you, you may not see it as good. But don't think that that's not good. It's just that it's coming from such a high place. As he breaks down the letters of Hashem's name, there's yud Hey, and then there's vav Hey. yud Hey is the higher half of Hashem's name. vav Hey is the lower half or more, more, where we are more closer to. So if you ever see something troubling that happens... Say to yourself, one second. If it's troubling, that means it's coming from even a deeper place. Like the kid who's getting a splinter taken out by his father. He can't imagine, how could this be from the love of my father or my mother? How could it be? It must be coming from a place that I can't understand it. When you get older, you may be lucky to understand it. That's why... There's another verse that says, a very famous verse brought down in, by King Solomon in the book of Proverbs in Mishlei. He says, Es asher ye'ehav Hashem yochiach. Those who Hashem loves the most, He rebukes them. <laughs> what does that mean? Some people will say, okay, God, don't love me so much. Right? You know? But the truth is, if something does happen to you, it means he loves you. Why does that father take that needle and poke it into the kid's leg? It's because he loves him so much that he's willing to poke him to help him. So it's those that Hashem loves. So whenever something happens, it's a very deep level, by the way, to, to reach. It's a high level, yet we work on ourselves to be able to reach that and live it and build trust in it and and believe and have that faith but it's a tr- it doesn't change the truth of the reality if somebody's not at that level it's those that Hashem loves that he puts through this kind of test 
So now we understand when it says klala and we translate it as the exchange, it means that the truth is even the exchange, meaning the curse, is also really a blessing. It's very interesting. There's a, it says in the Chumash, in the footnotes of the Chumash, that when you read the Torah, in twice in the Torah, you have the list of all the curses. Parsha Bechokosai and Parsha Kitavo. So it says there that don't call up anybody for the Aliyah. Who are you, you know, what are you going to do? The Gabbai is going to say, hey, you, hey, I hate your guts. You come up for the Aliyah full of the curses. You know, It's not nice. So we don't want anybody to feel singled out. So the reader of the Torah, whoever's the reader, he should just say the blessings, but nobody should be called up for it. So it's very well known that there are certain people that learn a lot of Hasidus, and they learn a sicha like we're learning today, that tells us what's the depth of the curse, that it's truly a blessing. They say, I want that aliyah. You want the aliyah where the blessings are concealed, it's coming from so high, if you truly believe that. Right? But anyway, you don't have to run for it, but that's the, the depth of when somebody does, because they really see it as good. By the way, in the story that I just mentioned before, that the Parsha Kitava, which is only read like two weeks before Rosh Hashanah, or sometimes even the Shabbos for Rosh Hashanah, over there, why did the Alter Rebbe's son faint when they listed off all the curses? What's going on? He knew his father's teachings that a curse in the Torah is really from a deep place of love. Why did he faint? And the answer is because every year his father, the Alter Rebbe himself, would be the reader of the Torah. So the son felt that when he heard the words curses, he didn't hear curse. He heard blessing. But that Shabbos, that year, the Alter Rebbe was out of town and there was a substitute Torah reader and the substitute Torah reader is not the Alter Rebbe. So when he read the words, the Alter Rebbe's son felt, he didn't feel the, the blessing in it. And that's why he fainted. By the way, he fainted so deep and they revived him and everything. It was a question that year on Yom Kippur if the Mittal Rebbe will be able to be healthy enough to fast on Yom Kippur. You're talking 12, 15, 20 days later. That's how unwell he got from that faint. Just pointing out that if you see it as curse, very, very difficult challenge to be able to handle, right? Now, with this, to understand that blessings, these are blessings that come from such a high place of kindness of God, and we should see it with our own eyes of, of, of flesh, that it's really kindness, this could happen through the fact that sometimes a person has to realize that suffering are really concealed goodness. And that's why it says, Hasmechim biyusurim. Those that are besimcha when they get a suffering, through this you could reach a very, very high level. It's, there's so many huge promises to this. That a person who's so joyful when suffering comes, it's a whole different world. And this is the reason why we have in the seven Shabbosim, between Tisha B'av and Rosh Hashanah, there are seven Shabbosim. Each one of these seven weeks are called the seven weeks of comfort. After a blow like that of Tisha B'av, you need many weeks of comfort. So we read every Shabbos a different theme of comfort. The Haftorah that speaks about the comfort that Hashem Himself will come and comfort us. There's a twice it says, I will and I will come and comfort you. 
Meaning, it's going to be a greater revelation than the one time I that it says in the first of the Ten Commandments. First of the Ten Commandments says, I am your God. Here it says, I and I will come, not I and I, it says, I, I will come and comfort you. Showing that it's even higher than the, a level than the way when God gave us the Torah. And that's why it says also, in one of the seven weeks, it says, in Parsha Nitzavim, it says, V'rav toiv lebeis Yisrael. Much good will come to Israel. In other words, he uses the word much. Why do you have to say much? Just say good will come to the children. Why do you have to say much or many good will come? Because it's going to be more than just the simple good. And this is the reason why in the times of the seven weeks, it's the time to reveal the concealed kindness of Hashem. The, the revealed kindness was hidden in the three weeks between Shabbat and Thomas and Tisha B'av. Ah, in the seven weeks, it comes out in a revealed way. And this is all revealed to us in this Torah that we have this week, where it says, A poor man who travels is not comforted, but Hashem comes and says, I will comfort him also. There's a famous uh, commentary on the Chumash called the Abudraham. You ever heard of the Abudraham? There's actually a Siddur called the Siddur Abudraham. Yeah. Anyways, a very famous commentary. I believe that he's buried outside of Pisa or in Pisa in, in Italy. Anyways, so he says an interesting thing. I'll go through it briefly. He says that uh, brings down a medrash that says the reason why we read this order of the seven haftoras. He says in the first haftorah it says nachamu nachamu ami, double the expression, comfort comfort my people, that they should get unbelievable comfort. So Jews answer back to God. He says the seven weeks are a conversation back and forth of God to the Jews. So he said the first week Hashem says, Nachmu, Nachwami, my people be comforted, be comforted. And then comes the answer of the Jewish people. In the second of Torah, we say to God, what? Comfort? Who are you giving me comfort from? You're telling the prophets to comfort us. We, that's like God, you left us and you left us just with the prophets. We want you yourself, Hashem. So that's why in the second after we say, Azavani Hashem, it feels like God left us. We want comfort from God Himself. So Hashem says in the in the and, and like in the third of Torah it says, like a poor man traveling who doesn't feel comfort. So in the fourth of Torah, Hashem answers and he says, from twice, I I will come and comfort you. He takes the complaint of us and he gives us comfort. And the continuation to the fifth week, it says that a barren, a, a woman who is barren, who can't have children, Hashem says, Kumi Eri, come up and I will give you the light and you will be able to be comforted from Hashem himself. Because it says, I will give it to you. And the Jews answer back in the seventh of Torah with this, Sois Asis Hashem, we could be joyful and happy with Hashem. So it's like, it's like a, this conversation. Ah, you could ask a question that Hashem knows all the future. Why did Hashem say, first he says, through the prophets that you're going to be comforted and then we go, we complain, we don't want to be comforted just through the prophets, we want to be comforted from God, you yourself. Otherwise it feels like you left us. So Hashem knows the conversation that's going to happen. Why did he first say, it's through the prophets? Ah, this answer 
we could grasp it based on what we learned the whole time today. Since the time that we live in is a time of a big exile and we're coming from Tisha B'Av, it could be that a Jew should be satisfied with the comfort that you get through the prophets. Because we're saying, this, oh, I'm in an exile, I just had Tisha B'Av, let me have any comfort, even if it comes through the prophet. Especially when you said, Nachamu, Nachamu, double comfort. Oh, so with this, we could say to ourselves, one second, maybe that comfort was like a punishment. And maybe I could think that punishment is in and itself something that Hashem would do. So, one second, is that coming from a concealed kindness from Hashem? Or is that something that's in a revealed way? Oh, so for this, you have to go through this exercise. First Hashem says, through the prophet. Then He says, me, myself, I'm going to do it. Now I get to understand that when it's good, it could be sometimes as an exchange, that it's an exchange. What do you mean an exchange? Not exchange for you. It's an exchange for the kindness that's concealed kindness. Sometimes a person could be connected to the internet and it goes blank and then after that you get a much stronger connection. Or sometimes your bank account, something could go wrong and it looks like you lost a lot of money. All of a sudden you open up again. Psh, look how much more good you could do. So it's the pain that comes that you realize that the goodness is coming from a place that's concealed. So it's the recognition that's necessary through this interpretation of the Yonis and ben that brings out the revealed idea of what Hashem is doing, that Hashem agrees with our complaint that the comfort to the prophets are not enough. We want the comfort directly, directly from Hashem. And that's why the next week in Parsha Shoftim, it says, twice, I, I will come and comfort you until we reach to the ultimate days with the true and everlasting redemption. But then we're going to see everything in a revealed way with our own eyes of flesh, the kindness of Hashem in a very revealed way. So let us hope that this should be now and we had enough tests and enough, you know, different reasons of what to look for and what to see and let it already be now where we're merit to see everything only in a revealed way. Let's say a to that because when you say L'chaim, you make it all tangible.